Off flight controllers, go, go for landing. Retro. Go. Rhino. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. In July 1969, Apollo 11, the first lunar mission with Commander Neil Armstrong and pilot Buzz Aldrin, landed on the moon, ending the space race between the US and the then Soviet Union. This, however, has not been the most interesting part of this story. The first small step taken by Armstrong, the landing of the lunar module Eagle in the Sea of Tranquility, or even its entering the lunar orbit, is really not what I want to focus on here. Instead, I wish to tell you the story of its descent. Almost five minutes into the descent, Several unexpected 1202 and 1201 executive overflow alarms indicated that there was something wrong with the system. Now it so happens that almost a year before this, in 1968, Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey tells the story of an astronaut, Dave Bowman, who's been having similar issues and interactions with HAL 9000 the sentient computing system that operates the spaceship. Now back to the Apollo mission and to real life, and unlike Dave Bauman in Kubrick's movie, the Apollo commander was in fact able to ignore the system's messages, having been given the go-ahead by the Houston Control Center. The rest is history. And here comes the beat that completes the picture and restores the truth to a story that pretty much demonizes artificial intelligence up to this day. Three years after Apollo 11, the director of Apollo Flight Computer Programming Lab at the MIT, Margaret Hamilton, writes, The computer, or rather the software in it, was smart enough to recognize that it was being asked to perform more tasks than it should be performing. It then sent out an alarm, which meant to the astronaut, I am overloaded with more tasks than I should be doing at this time, and I am going to keep only the more important tasks, that is, the ones needed for landing. Actually, the computer was programmed to do more than recognize error conditions. A complete set of recovery programs was incorporated into the software. The software's action, in this case, was to eliminate lower priority tasks and re-establish the more important ones. And that's how the letter carries on. If the computer hadn't recognized this problem and taken recovery action, I doubt if Apollo 11 would have been the successful moon landing it was. My name is Argiro Karanasiu, and you're listening to 13AI, a series of transatlantic dialogues on primarily ethical and legal issues posed by the advancement of algorithmic models and the automated systems deploying them. I begin my journey in the US Connecticut, where I'm meeting with Wendell Wallach, 
a consultant, ethicist and scholar at Yale University's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the co-author of the book Moral Machines. This is episode one. Well, we're really entering into a very new space with policy making and artificial intelligence. What some of you may be aware of is that there have been recent breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, often referred to as deep learning algorithms. And this has created a great deal of excitement that advances will be made again. Over the past 20 years, there have been some fundamental problems in perception and learning that were not being solved and some of the researchers who had been in the field for many decades were starting to think were unsolvable. But now we suddenly have this new, new approach where algorithms, really neural networks, networks that try and emulate the neural functions of the brain are fed massive amounts of data and able to find very interesting relationships in that data. And suddenly we have computer systems that can label fairly accurately the different objects in a photo and perform other tasks that we were starting to think were just too difficult for artificial intelligence. So that has brought on what's sometimes referred to as a new winter, excuse me, a new summer. These, these seasonal metaphor comes up in artificial intelligence. Periodically over the last 60 years or so, there have been a great deal of excitement around new approaches in artificial intelligence, and then they don't pan out so well, and we go into an AI winter. But now we are again in an AI summer where people believe there will be great breakthroughs as we move forward. So for that reason, you're suddenly seeing a lot of attention to uh, policies for how we should develop artificial intelligence, guidelines for researchers who are developing artificial intelligence, and opening up the door of science fiction scenarios like smarter than human artificial intelligence and whether, if it comes along, we'll be able to control it. And, um, well, as you know, the purpose of this series is to bring together scholars from both sides of the Atlantic so that they can share similar concerns and address AI from different vantage points. Uh, we've seen different um, initiatives um, in this fashion. So, for example, about a year ago, BSI issued a guide called Robots and Robotic Devices, which was effectively a guide to the ethical design and application of robots and robotic systems. Um, now, this was written by a committee of scientists, academics, ethicists, philosophers, and users with a targeted audience uh, that included the device designers. Can you tell us a bit more about on what's new and why all of a sudden uh, the so-called morality of artificial agents is, is a topic of discussion? Haven't we always grappled with one's ability to tell right from wrong in certain moral dilemmas? We've always grappled with humans' ability to tell right from wrong in certain moral dilemmas, and there's some fundamental questions about how good we are at it, but nevertheless, the languages of ethics and morality are something we use to make decisions. I would argue that one of the functions of our ethical language is, is to help us make decisions in situations where there's a great deal of uncertainty, we don't have all the information we need, some of the information we have is incorrect, and it's very difficult for us to calculate, if at all, the consequence of various courses of action. 
So in some senses, the languages of ethics are largely about interpolating in new situations what's appropriate to do and what isn't appropriate to do. But regardless of how good you think humans are at that, we have never been dealing with artificial agents making morally significant decisions, except in science fiction. That's been a big theme in science fiction. Actually, for many decades, robots were by definition bad. They always would overthrow their masters and rebel against slavery or so forth. And then in the 1950s, the science fiction writer Isaac Asimov suddenly flipped that on its head by proposing his rules for robots, the three laws for robots, largely that robots um, obey humans, that robots don't harm humans, they obey humans and they engage in self-preservation. And with those three laws, he changed the genre of science fiction so that suddenly robots didn't all have to be bad, they could actually be good. But what most people forget about Asimov's laws were that in nearly every story he wrote, these simple, straightforward laws arranged hierarchically were problematic. What could a robot do, for example, when it got conflicting commands from two human beings? Would it know that a surgeon bending over a soldier on a battlefield with a knife was not harming that soldier? So Asimov started to make us aware of how complex moral decision-making is, and also I would argue that a simple rule-basing morality would not work. But that brings us to the present day. Well, actually, before we get to the present day, let me tell you a little bit about, uh, about uh, the book I wrote back in two, that was published back in 2008 with Colin Allen, who was a philosopher at Indiana University. And we were beginning to recognize this as an interesting problem, and we thought that a lot was happening in research on humans and cognitive science about human moral psychology and moral decision-making. So we thought that this would make for an interesting topic to explore whether it was possible for robots to make moral decisions, and if so, what would be the best way to implement that in a robotic system. Um, whether it would be enough to have reasoning alone or whether they would need other faculties to, uh, such as moral emotions or moral sentiments, uh, consciousness, all kinds of things that humans have that we don't know how to implement into artificial intelligence. And the book became a way of bringing together a lot of different strands of thoughts that were developing, including some initial research problems that were be, being called machine ethics or machine morality. So we, in effect, mapped this new field of research. And the topic had two sides of it. One side was this question of whether robots could make moral decision-making, but the other side was beginning to look at how humans do it in a very comprehensive fashion. Even though ethics has been a theme within philosophy for at least two and a half thousand years, if not longer, nobody had really looked comprehensively at how humans do moral decision-making. So in the guise of looking at how a robot might make a moral decision, we also looked in greater depth at humans. But the reality was that this was a very early problem to pose. 
the technology had not gotten up to the problem yet. And so our book, I would say, was one part philosophy, one part cognitive science, and one part computer science. Now fast forward, and here we are, um, eight or nine years later, and suddenly this topic has become one that a lot of people are directing attention to. But they aren't directing attention to it because we have the technology yet that can make sophisticated moral decisions. They're directing it because they expect great breakthroughs and new applications through the combination of these deep learning techniques with other techniques that have been developed in artificial intelligence. So again, researchers and philosophers and bioethicists and legal theorists are beginning to think of, well, if we start to deploy robots in the home or have autonomous cars on the highway or have, or have robotic systems being used in warfare that could pick their own targets and dispatch people without, without a human being involved in that decision, or at least being involved in the, the final making of that decision, then can we implement that kind of sophistication into artificial intelligence? And if so, what would we need to do so? And what are the best approaches to do so? So suddenly our book, from eight years ago, nine years ago, has suddenly become a timely book. That's true. And yes. therefore, it's, uh, it's getting new references. But that said, there's so many new people jumping into the field. You know, some of them will reference moral machines as if it's, you know, an ancient manuscript. Though I think uh, most people who actually read it realize that there's very little of it that is even out of date because the technology is just beginning to come along where we can think about these issues seriously. So now, what is happening over the last year or two? Well, these deep learning algorithms are relatively recent. There's been a lot of publicity around them, particularly in um, situations such as this program that DeepMind Google developed called AlphaGo that beat one of the world's best Go players, um, Lee Seedal, in a competition of five games. And since that time, AlphaGo has actually played nearly all, if not all, the great Go players in the world, not all in tournaments, but in individual games and beaten them all. So you might argue that there is a computer program that's the world champion chess player, excuse me, world champion Go player. So these, these very sophisticated cognitive tasks are now being performed by computer programs, and therefore it has gotten forward-thinking people to address, well, can we ensure that they will be safe? What's the appropriate actions for them to take in certain situations they will be involved with? So we hear about the trolley car problems with, with self-driving cars. You may have heard about issues about a service robot in the home delivering medicine at the appropriate time to a homebound person and what that robot should do if the person refuses to take their medicine. 
So this plethora of ethical issues are coming to the fore, not necessarily because we have the technology to implement them all, but we recognize that we are moving toward deploying the kinds of systems that may encounter these challenges. And uh, to, to put it in a rather codified manner, when it comes to automated decision-making, and you referred to the uh, trolley problem, for example, when applied to driverless cars, um, what could really be um, the, um, the required scenario when you have an automated decision being met by um, a robotic system, um, possibly acting out of script? Uh, so, would we require a rational reasoning, a moral reasoning, or perhaps no reasoning at all, given that certain uh, human-made decisions actually lack reasoning? So, why should we be needing this from, from um, fully automated systems? Well, I mean, this is a very good question, and in, a, and in a certain sense, we'd have to sort of take it apart and go down all the different alleys that uh, that can apply by this decision this uh, this question i think the problem is that humans may sometimes make spontaneous decisions or follow their intuition we give a degree of latitude to human decision making we attribute a certain degree of freedom and autonomy to individuals therefore we aren't necessarily happy if the outcome of their decision is harm to somebody else, but we may also recognize that they did the best they could in a situation. We're likely to be a lot less tolerant of actions taken by robotic systems or artificial intelligence that are harmful to other human beings. So it becomes quite crucial that we think in advance about the kinds of situations they might encounter. And when we can predetermine those situations and we can more or less determine what is the right action, then we might be able to hard program into the system an appropriate response. Some people will say that's moral decision making, but it's largely the decision making of the engineers who design the system. The bigger problem is when the engineers can't always predict what the system will do in a new challenge or it's very controversial what would be the appropriate action. And then the, you have these questions of, well, should the computer ever even be deployed in a situation where it might take a controversial action that hurt people, that hurt others? Or if it's a circumstance that occurs that is surprising to us, then what is our best ability to inculcate it with the capability to be sensitive to moral considerations and factor those into the choices and actions that the system makes. Now let's be clear here. These are computational systems. These are not sensitive human beings we're talking about. They may not even be conscious of what they're doing. AlphaGo, the software program that beat Lee Sedol, it doesn't really understand what Go is or what it's doing. It's not playing the same game that Lee Sedol was playing. But it has looked at or studied or played, by the time it had played him, a million and a half different games of Go. Lee Sedol had perhaps played 15,000, 20,000 in his lifetime. So the fact that he beat AlphaGo at all um, perhaps as a testament to the, the brilliance of the human. 
but in that we are people who look at actions in terms of some kind of result, winning the game, and winning the game is determined in some fixed logical way, the machine beat Lee Seedall. Even if Lee Seedall may have brought capabilities to bear that a machine couldn't bring to bear. And we have the same thing when we are looking at moral decision making. What capabilities can the machine bring to bear on ethically significant situations, such as whether to, uh, if somebody is holding a gun, whether that person holding a gun may be harmful to other people and whether the robot should intervene in some way. What sensibilities can it bring to play in a situation like that and are they sufficient to make an appropriate choice to perform an appropriate action? Well, you did mention that these are computational systems, so um, unavoidably uh, one might argue that uh, perhaps uh, there is a better way of assessing a risk uh, to minimize harm of a specific act. So um, is there really any way that uh, we should be putting our trust to um, um, an automated system? Is there such a thing as a mathematical formula to maximize happiness? that we should put our trust on? And in any event, can AI serve as a tool to fix or to a certain extent even shape socially flawed morals? Well, for the short term, we should be uh, pretty cautious about when we trust systems. The systems we have today should not really be deployed in mission critical activities unless the humans have a great deal of control over those systems. And that brings us to questions about whether we're ready for self-driving cars because there are situations in which they, they could cause harm. But the reality is there's no formula for happiness. There's no simple formula for making the appropriate decisions in all contexts. The capabilities that humans bring to bear to make our semi-satisfactory decisions are much more sophisticated than those we know how to implement in a robotic system. But what we are engaged in with artificial intelligence and robotics today is, I would say, an inquiry, an exploration into how far we can get with a computational platform in imbuing a system with intelligence to function if not in the social world, at least in the world that is largely dominated by other computers. But we are talking about service robots in the home, we're talking about self-driving cars, where we have AI applications that can help enhance human decision making. So we have all kinds of advances being made and a lot of what we are challenged with today is understanding what kinds of input what kinds of input and output is appropriate for a machine that is advising a human and appropriate for a machine that functions relatively autonomously without, without much human interaction. So this is, you might say this is a research project. Now some people, some scientists like to think that humans are nothing more than computational machines and it's just that we don't function on uh, on silicon, but we function on carbon. And what's important is whether the synaptic connections between one neuron or another are firing. And they say, well, that's no different than what we get with a neural network and connectivity. Perhaps, 
That's a way of looking at what humans are. But again, it's a theory. None of this proves that we can develop very sophisticated computers with a high degree of sensitivity and a high degree of ability to act appropriately in very complicated circumstances, which is what they'll confront if they are engaged in the commerce of everyday life with, with many erratic human beings running around. So we got talking a little bit about the machines making moral decisions, but your question started with these new guidelines. And the new guidelines aren't all about what the machine should do. They're largely about what researchers should and should not do or what companies should or should not do. And yes, because of these breakthroughs in deep learning, suddenly we have all kinds of guidelines coming along, and guidelines for all kinds of different circumstances that an artificially intelligent machine may be put in. So it's not only the principles that you mentioned, but the IEEE has been having meetings and releasing documents with all kinds of new principles and guidelines. There have been many important reports coming out that have suggested other guidelines, including the 200-year uh, AI report from Stanford. The Japanese have, government has, support, has suggested some guidelines. Uh, a recent conference at Asilomar in California put together the, by the Future of Life Institute looked at all the guidelines that have been there so far, and they revised them a little bit and had the 150 or 60 so AI researchers and social theorists, leading social theorists, uh, comment on and put those out as the Asilomar guidelines. So a lot of this is coming along only because the people in these fields are trying to be responsible, they're trying to think ahead, and they're trying to ensure that we don't suddenly start deploying technologies that are unsafe. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, do you think that having all these, uh, let's say, I, I wouldn't use the word cacophony, although I'm very tempted to, but let's say this patchwork of different guidelines here and there, um, how would we be able to end up to an agreement uh, to um, a standardized way of thinking about these guidelines? Well, I think there's agreement already on a lot of those guidelines, but I agree with you. At this point, it's a cacophony, but it's but let's say let you know let a thousand let a thousand flowers bloom. But I do think we're going to have to move toward a more rigorous evaluation of what kind of governance and oversight we want to bring in for artificial intelligence and robotics. And that's why I have started my recent project uh, that I'm doing together with the Hastings Center and the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs called Building Global Infrastructure to Ensure that AI and Robotics are Beneficial. So it's about thinking through a new approach to the oversight of emerging technologies. There's a total mismatch between the kind of government regulatory oversight we have now and the speed at which these technologies are coming along. So the idea here is to bring in a new kind of issues manager that networks with everybody, that convenes multi-stakeholder forums, that functions as a good faith broker, and helps work through what the best solutions are to the various challenges that we will confront with artificial intelligence. And one of the main uh, questions that uh, especially legal scholars are interested in is the pressing issue of algorithmic accountability. Um, and uh, some might argue that by actually um, 
outsourcing these, these moral decisions to automated systems, we might be seeing an opportunity here to roll over the, uh, the burden of uh, this algorithmic accountability from um, the, um, perform, uh, from the um, actor, from the owner, uh, to the designer or to the manufacturer. From the owner to the designer, or are you saying from the designer to the owner? It really depends on the, the, the terms of agreement. Yeah. So this brings uh, up the issue of, of contracts, but should it really be relying on a contractual agreement between uh, the consumer Probably and the manufacturer? Not. Probably not. For many years, manufacturers of self-driving cars were looking at a model where they would be building cars that have some degree of self-driving capability, but perhaps could not solve all problems. And in fact, that's where we are right now. Um, self-driving cars are not really ready for prime time. There's certain problems that haven't been solved. So for many years, the manufacturers looked at a model where the car would, the person would ostensibly told they were still responsible for driving. And the car, if it encountered a situation that it couldn't deal with, would try and hand off the control of the car to the human. And that was the model. So the model was that ultimately the human would be responsible. But we now know, I mean, a human in a self-driving car, even if it's only semi-functional, they're going to be inattentive, they're going to fall asleep, they're going to be bored, uh, they're going to alert, they're going to text message. And even with a few seconds prompting, they may not be able to fully address their attention to the road and take over from the car. So now most of the manufacturers understand that that simple trade-off between humans and machines is not going to go very well. And furthermore, that probably most courts will hold the manufacturers liable, regardless of whether they said that the human should be attentive to the road. Because the very situation is implicit that it will be very hard for humans to be attentive to the road. So the manufacturers recently have, have decided, well, these we believe these cars are going to cause so fewer accidents than inattentive humans would cause that we will take on the liability for the cars. So that is a change, and that also is a change in how they may they may deploy the automobiles. So that's really where we are, that um, the manufacturers are going to be held liable, culpable, and responsible, responsible really culpable and liable for the technologies they deploy. And that's probably the right thing. It, because otherwise you have a situation where manufacturers may deploy devices before they are truly ready for release to the public before they should be put out in for daily use. Now, in the case of self-driving cars, if they think the technology is advanced enough, they will go ahead with this because they feel that the overall benefits will justify the risks, and they probably can cover in the cost of the car um, those circumstances that they will be held liable for. But that becomes a little bit more complicated when you talk about other contexts. And even with the self-driving car, it becomes very complicated when you talk about the self-driving car killing a pedestrian. But those are liabilities that manufacturers probably will take on 
self-driving cars will kill some humans that attentive human drivers would not, but presumably they will slam on the brakes much more quickly, they will be attentive constantly, so that in overall they're likely not to have many of the accidents that inattentive humans have. As we talk about ethical issues pertaining to robotics and artificial intelligence, sometimes the conversation gets very confusing because sometimes it seems to be talking about what we humans should be doing as we introduce artificial intelligence into the commerce of daily life. In other words, what are the appropriate ethical ways in which technology should be introduced? And sometimes we seem to be talking about what decisions should the robots or artificial intelligent machines be making when they are confronted with significant challenges, with morally significant challenges. So it's just an important distinction to make because I know as I talk I often go back and forth between those two themes. But sometimes we're really talking about imbuing the capacity to make morally significant decisions into the technologies themselves and other times we're talking about how people should act or what kinds of rules and guidelines we should put in place for humanity as it deals with the introduction of robots in the home or on the highway or in other contexts. And then is there any scope for error when it comes to automated systems? Do we allow them to, to err in their decisions? Well, if we don't allow them to err, then we won't be able to deploy them because these are complex systems. Um, often they're what they will do in various situations are determined by probabilities, but even if there's a low probability that something will occur, there will be occasions when that low probability event occurs. I mean, that's what we hear in these self-driving car trolley problems, you know, does it kill the driver, does it uh, kill five people that it might run into, you know, or rather than run into them, it drives off a bridge or it goes into a wall and kills the driver. That's probably a once in a trillion mile situation, but it might occur, probably will occur on some occasion. So is that an error or is that just a situation where there's no good choice that can be made? On the other hand, most people say that if it could make a choice, it should kill the least number of people, which means perhaps killing the driver, whoever's in the car. But also most people say they will not buy such a car. Exactly. So now to, to have take the right action in a once in a trillion mile circumstance, we have millions of people who won't buy cars, self-driving cars, and those millions of people could kill more, could have more accidents than the cars will have. So it doesn't make any sense. To demand perfection is silly. Perfection is often called the enemy of the good. So here's a question for your, for your listeners. Let's say that this, all the analysis that suggests the self-driving cars will have many fewer accidents than human beings will have. So they have half the accidents. Some people think it will be much higher, that they, they will be even better than it. But let's say they just have half the accidents that humans have. Well, in America alone, we kill 30 to 35,000 people on the road. And the estimates are that perhaps human error is a factor in 90% of those accidents. 
So if those were all self-driving cars, you might be able to save 15,000, 16,000 lives a year. But let us say that self-driving cars will still kill some people that attentive humans would not kill. Should we push for the adoption of the cars? Because they will cause so fewer deaths? Or is the fact that they aren't perf perfect yet, that they might even cause accidents that a human wouldn't cause, does that mean they shouldn't be deployed yet? Thank you very much. That's something that um, the Twitter sphere can pick up. Uh, I'll just uh, remind everyone the hashtag, which is um, 13AI, where you can provide your answers and, of course, deliberate further. And last but not least, um, we have the uh, last section for uh, this podcast, which is called Breaking the Taboo, questions not normally asked at conferences. And if you had one really difficult uh, slash thought-provoking slash unconventional question that you could ask um, to someone who might not even uh, be from the same discipline as you or they might not even be sharing the same um, expertise with you, then what would that be? Well, the difficult question is really, is our computational model of intelligence that is being implemented in these computers, is it really satisfactory to explain all intelligence? Some people would say no, and some of those people believe in spirit or soul, or at least they use that kind of language, and at the very least that kind of language points to things that we cannot explain scientifically. So the deep question is, are the scientific models we presently have, are they really adequate to explain how we do things like make moral decisions? Are they truly adequate to explain what it means to be a conscious human being, to be self-aware, to be aware of what you are doing and why you are doing it? These questions aren't totally new, but they do sometimes seem to be taboo within certain kinds of scientific circles that function as if this all has a lot of mysticism behind it and we now know that much of this mysticism is based on superstition or on primitive religious beliefs. But what we seem to be doing is juxtaposing some advanced view of science against some primitive view of spirituality or religion. Where I think that oftentimes science, religion or spirituality is largely about things that we do not have explanations for yet. So that's the question really. That's the taboo question. The question that you don't really ask in very strict rational scientific circles. Well, let's hope that this will be addressed in the next podcast. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for uh, this, this talk. And, well, let's take it from there for um, the next episode. Well, thank you very much.